Hey there, if you end up liking this episode of Album Epitaph, you'll probably like our first four as well, so, so please check it out. We've, we've got three more to go, and we hope you stick around for those as well. Also, please know that we'd love it if you could share or review Album Epitaph wherever you get your podcasts. There's, there's no marketing team here, so your support really makes a difference. Okay. Um, thank you. I'm ready. Okay. Let's go. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group. This is Album Epitaph, a podcast that dives into the unheralded albums which represent an era, a moment, and explains why it mattered. Well, it all matters. Music matters. And in 1957, when a brash young America was beginning to desegregate, when R&B music combined with country and western, when jazz left the main stage for the smoky club. Well, it was a time for building bridges. On this episode, 1957 and the merging of distinct American worlds. Three years of rock and roll, cool jazz, and a profile of an unheralded hero in music, all heard through the smooth vibes of her self-titled album, Blossom Deer. I have eyes for you to give you dirty looks. I have words that do not come from children's books. There's a trick with a knife I'm learning to do. But everything I've got belongs to you. That was Everything I Got, a terrific representation of Blossom Deary's self-titled jazz album from 1957. It's an album that's a traditional jazz vocal record, but upon closer inspection, it stands out as something more. This album is both closely intertwined with the New York City jazz scene of the 50s, but it still stands alone. There's no other voice like Deary's, and she's always been a bit of a paradox. This is the first of her six Verve Records albums, and they've all become cult classic jazz vocal albums. When you put it on today, it's as though you're being transported to a dynamic, distant, but peaceful era in music history. What a gift. Peacefulness. Do I want you? Oh my, do I, honey, did I do? This cabaret vocal style is the type of jazz that fits a very particular mood particularly well. I guess you could call it niche. It, it certainly doesn't work everywhere. I'm sure it wouldn't land on your morning commute or something. But it's worth our time here because, well, there are times in life when you might need an album like this. This is also an example of mastery. On the surface, it can sound kitschy, cutesy, and shallow but a closer inspection reveals a deeper level of musical talent and vocal control. Mastery can often be deceiving that way. Blossom Deary was also a master of walking the tightrope, between being differential and being the boss, between black and white, between serious and fun, rich and poor. She walks these tightropes with so much control that it looks easy. And that's why the album still matters today. While she's not a name most people have heard before, it's a name hard to forget. Blossom Deary has had her praises sung by some very qualified musicians. 
Elton John, he named his million-dollar piano after her. 90s pop stars like Kylie Minogue and Christina Aguilera, many more, they cite her as a key vocal influence. Diana Krall sang tributes at the Newport Jazz Festival. She rubbed shoulders with plenty of the greats. The most famous was Miles Davis. And Davis? Well, he said that Deary was the only white woman who ever had soul. There are a lot of great albums out there. Many forgotten. Sometimes a voice comes along that's so distinctive that it's tough to get a handle on. Distinctive musicians give the listener a lot of information to process, and it's often the negative impressions that come out first. But if we commit to pushing through that, we sometimes get rewarded. And very often, it's these unique voices that end up illustrating the era in music better than others. That's what Album Epitaph is all about, explaining a moment in music history by thinking deeply about an album of that era. We treat albums as things that can help us understand where we're coming from. That's because they're always a product of the time and the place they were created. An album's context, like what was happening within the genre at the time, or the political views of the time, or the city it comes from, the context can end up mattering as much as the music itself. Without context, Blossom Deary would just be another cutesy cabaret singer. She's better than that. So let's figure it out. There's a certain type of person, I I think we all know one, someone who seems to be at home and comfortable in any social situation. Someone who can read the people around them, who know instantly what needs to be said. They can interpret tapping fingers or, or a curl of the upper lip, an eyebrow, they pick up tones and voices and they can read a room or, or the writing on the wall. Watch them as they reflect back whatever is given to them, matching viewpoints with tact, picking up someone's cadence, vocabulary, even picking up someone's accent. They're sometimes called chameleons and, and sometimes called shapeshifters. You can drop a chameleon into any social situation and they fit right in. They seem classy at a white tablecloth dinner in Manhattan. They seem rough at the mountain bar on the far side of Anarchist Pass. Chameleons are right at home with new immigrants and old money, with any race or religion, in any office, city, country. It's so natural to them that they don't even know what's happening. So it's no surprise that many politicians are chameleons, but but in music history, many of the most important artists have also been chameleons. That's partly because chameleons have a way of delivering exactly what the crowd wants, I think they can see it so clearly that they're compelled to deliver. That's great for the artist, until it isn't. But it also means that these people are often perfectly suited for building bridges between groups or or styles. And that's the crucial trait in 1950s music. What we're talking about in this episode of Album Epitaph is just that. Chameleons building bridges between people and music. Some musicians have that skill set to drift between genres between worlds, linking ideas and people. Blossom Deary was one of them. She was a woman in a man's industry, a blonde girl in a black jazz club, classically trained in upstate New York, but living in the city with a stripper named Rusty Lane. She sung French in Paris, with John Lennon in London. Wherever she was, she left everyone charmed, and yet she seems to have always been in charge. But Deary was also demeaned, sold short, not taken seriously, and and the subject of sexism throughout her career. And she navigated it all with the ability to not take shit from anyone. 
And all the while, she turned out one of the great jazz vocal albums of the era. To understand all of this, we've got to go back to 1957. The 1950s was firmly the age of America. America was the only country that escaped the Second World War in a stronger position than it went in. And it had seized political and economic leadership of the world. In the background was the Cold War and McCarthyism, but, but this is the era when America began to thrive, at home and abroad. The country created one of the widest social safety nets in history. It expanded the middle class, took industrialization to fantastic new heights. It created and led international organizations like the World Health Organization. It preached heavy on values, but it put its money where its mouth was. America built the world's greatest network of universities and produced much of the world's most groundbreaking science and art. No doubt some of the best music ever created. It was brash and young and dynamic, and the rest of the world knew it. But all the while, lurking under the surface was a level of separation and and division that was difficult to understand from the outside. No country was as diverse as America, but the lines between people were painfully clear. 1957 is still the Jim Crow era. Systematic racism across facets of the entire country. The music we're talking about here is smack in the middle of this era unfolding. These are the grim years of the civil rights movement. And like so many movements, it's the end the last gasp that hurts the most. It was seven years after 1957 that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed and formally ended the Jim Crow era. For many people, seven very long years. But race wasn't the only division in America. There there was also stronger divisions between classes, religions, and sexes at the time. Cities were organized by country of origin or, or by church, old boys' networks. Whatever it was, it seemed like there were many different Americas depending on where you were. And that's where chameleons and bridge builders come in. It's not a coincidence that so much in music changes in 1957. That's the year the first children born after the war begin to come of age. They had grown up in a post-war peacefulness, but but surrounded by trauma. While mums and dads flocked to the suburban malaise of baseball and, and big cars and stiff scotch, a new group of people, now called teenagers, they're getting ready to blow the lid off things. The use of the term teenager was first embraced by the music and television industries of the late 50s. Seventeen magazine might have invented the segment, but Dick Clark's American Bandstand revolutionized the media world with it. Clark combined TV and music, but he also embraced multiracial audiences and performers, and 
and he created the first ever teenager-focused media event. That format is still one of the most enduring in television. He started it all in 1956. Once his show was on the air, companies like Pepsi or Kellogg's or Montclair Menthols began to market directly to teens. Dick Clark, in in 57, he called teenagers the most entertainment-starved group in the country. And he pointed out that they had about $9 billion a year of purchasing power. That's a lot of money now. Even more then. Clark saw himself as the bridge needed. It wasn't long before his new market segment began to influence not just the commercials, but the sound of the music. You women have heard of jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. So we've got two ideas about mid-50s music. The first is the separation of people in particular musical styles, just waiting to be bridged and combined. And the second is this new, uniquely American energy coming from a generation ready to explode out of the burbs. Those forces shape jazz in all sorts of ways. But before we go there, let's look at how those forces were changing the two most mainstream genres, country and western and the blues. I try so hard, my dear, to show that you're my every dream. Yet you're afraid each thing I do is just some evil scheme. The fact that country and western is a term describing the place the music comes from, well, that tells us a lot about music. But for now, we should know that in the 1950s, the country and the West were becoming increasingly connected to cities in the North, fueled by things like economic growth and and the new interstate highway system. Almost as soon as those highways and bridges were built, country and Western began to feel dated, old-fashioned. Listening to Hank Williams there, and, and he's one of the greats, by the way, well, as old as Cold Cold Heart seems today, it might have felt just as old in Chicago in 1957. That's why a new style of country music was catching on, one that picked up the rhythm. Hey, get rhythm. When you get the blues, come on, get rhythm. When you get the blues, get a rock and roll feeling in your bones, put taps on your toes and get gone, get rhythm. When you get the blues, a little shoe shine boy, he never gets low down, but he's got the dirtiest job in town. Johnny Cash bridged those two worlds as well as anybody. Classic country plus rhythm. But just down the highway, something similar was happening with the blues. If you picture a classic Robert Johnson blues song, and you add a rhythm section, you get, yeah, you know it, rhythm and blues. Shake, rattle, and roll. Shake, rattle, and roll. 
prior to the war, R&B and country and western music really existed in separate worlds, as black or white, country or city, north or south. But, but things got weird in the 50s. Some of those walls between people started to come down. Now, if you take country and western and you combine it with rhythm and blues, and you throw in a dash of folk and bluegrass and you amp up the rhythm even further, well, you've just invented rock and roll. <laughs> it's no surprise that rock and roll comes from Memphis, that that middle American city, because that's where the styles literally met. That's where the bridge was. It ain't a coincidence that Memphis is home to Carl Perkins and Muddy Waters, Johnny Cash, Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and the King himself. Yeah, the King. Well, there were two of them, actually. More on that in a second. There are a lot of people who go back in time trying to determine when rock and roll was invented. But that's really tricky to do. Even the term rock and roll changes over time. But it can be fun to find the influences of the influencers. You can dig forever. From the Beatles, it's, it's Chuck Berry. From Berry, it's Louis Jordan, and so on. So I guess Jordan is as good of a candidate for the start of rock and roll as any. Here, here's... Is you is or is you ain't my baby? I'm going to walk right up to her gate And see if I can get it straight Cause I want her I'm going to ask her Is you is or is you ain't my baby? Does it sound like rock and roll? Not really, right? Yeah, I know. But it is. Just slower. Here, I'll boost the tempo a bit. I'm gonna walk right up to her gate And see if I can get it straight Cause I want her I'm gonna ask her Is you, is or is you ain't my baby The way you're acting lately makes me doubt Yep, there it is. Rock and roll. But anyhow, this really isn't the start of rock and roll either. Because in reality, rock and roll would have existed in the clubs long before it was ever recorded. I read a story about a T-Bone Walker show from the era. He played a solo, guitar above his head, and then he dropped into the splits where he landed on a stage full of dollar bills and women's underwear. That's pretty rock and roll if you ask me. So here's a real rock and roll tune, one that I don't need to adjust. Maybe the first one to hit it big. It starts with that double hit snare, one of the most recognizable sounds in music. You've got 12 seconds to make it to the dance floor. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat rags on. The kids went hysterical. The story of Rock Around the Clock is, is really the story of how rock and roll was invented. Bill Halley and his saddlemen had been scrambling around America as a country and western act for years. But as he toured farther north, the group began to incorporate more swing and rhythm and, and attitude. Eventually, the name didn't fit. And in the 50s, Halley changed from the saddlemen to the comets, and he pushed the rhythm further playing songs like Big Joe Turner's Shake, Rattle, and Roll. 
At the time, Hallie recorded the single 13 Women and Only One Man in Town. But there wasn't much of a plan for the B-side, so Hallie hastily recorded Rock Around the Clock for it. Its rough sound and, and loud drums are actually a result of Hallie rushing the final mix. <laughs> there was no grand plan here. But it still took two years before everything went crazy. I don't think Hallie ever saw it coming. What's cool for me, though, is that it took time for a younger generation to find that B-side and make it something that mattered. I love that. It's actually possible for the audience to bring a song to life or to even change its meaning. Mostly the artists create it, but, but every once in a while, it's the crowd that decides. I remember Eddie Vedder describing something similar and how his audience changed the meaning of Pearl Jam's classic song, Alive. For Vedder, the original lyric, I'm still alive, it was said like a, like a shrug after a defeat. Oh, I'm, I'm still alive, that sort of thing. But when the audience sang it year after year with, with so much positive, reaffirming life, the lyric changed, becoming more of a victory cry. You can't defeat me, I'm still alive. Yeah. Sometimes the crowd decides, changing a song from a defeat all the way to a victory. And so the way I see it, the crowd invented rock and roll. Bill Halley, well, he was the right guy in the right place at the right time. And he was smart enough to see a shot and take it, becoming one of the era's early bridge builders and creating one of the most iconic songs in pop music history. That's not bad. There are two kings of rock and roll who really define music in 1957. Both of them prototypical chameleons, shapeshifters, bridge builders. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot of metaphors. Okay, so um, rock and roll. 57, uh, The King, uh, Little Richard. Little Richard was a strange dude, even in 1957. He'd been an outsider his whole life, with a leg three inches shorter than the other and, and an eye far bigger than the other. He was always off balance. Bullied by his peers and his father his whole life. Actually, right up until his father was, was killed by his friend in the street. Yes, it's bizarre. But, but little Richard was a chameleon and a survivor. When he played with ferocious energy unmatched even today, his face looked both scared and angry, like he had been cornered by a wolf. His hair was huge and he wore crazy clothes, like suits with small mirrors all over them, Richard reflecting whatever was around him. And he liked to wear a lot of makeup and was sometimes aggressively feminine. There had never been anything like him. Little Richard is a hero for many, not just because of the music, but because he was strong enough to break gender and sexuality norms in a world that had plenty of forces preventing that. For a lot of his career, he never had more than one foot in the closet, and, and that stance helped a lot of people. I imagine that his bravado was a type of armor. But in standing there, strong, he gave permission for a lot of people to be different. 
but he couldn't have done it without supreme talent and the guts to match. Little Richard was often described as a shapeshifter, someone who could drift between all sorts of worlds and be the star of the show wherever he went. That was true in the church or in rock and roll. He followed up 50s hits like Jenny Jenny and Lucille and Tutti Frutti Good Booty. That's actually the real lyric. He followed it up by denouncing rock and roll and becoming a preacher and a gospel singer. But he came back. Always did. Little Richard spent his life flipping back and forth between those two worlds. That's where his magic came from. Scooping up the blues and gospel and supercharging it with hysterical levels of rhythm. Whether he was at the altar or the piano, it was biblical. We recognize Little Richard today as a wonderfully talented musician, but in 57, many didn't see it that way. To them, he was a pitchy singer. Yeah, because he was running around sweating his ass off, or or they called him a sloppy piano player. (laughs) Because he was on top of the piano. (laughs) All of that criticism was missing the point. What flipped in 1957 was that raucous noise, excited playing, howls and simple beats changed from being signs of of an inexperienced musician to being the most important attributes in music. The old jazz crowd, like Blossom Deary, they were out. Little Richard was in. Still is. Here, let's listen to this. A song from after his first comeback in the 60s. It's then that he recorded my favorite Little Richard song, a rare ballad for him, often the only reprieve of the mania in his shows. Anyway, I I think it's a beauty. Oh, and also, check out a very young guitarist named Maurice James playing on this track. You'll know him by a different name, Jimi Hendrix. wasn't so peaceful with everyone, or even himself. Throughout his life, he flipped between his strong, conservative religious views and his career as a hard-partying, coked-out, sex-fiend, rock-and-roll entertainer. His personality could flip like a coin. I'm not sure he was ever able to come to peace with any of it. But he was a king. There's another king in rock and roll from 1957 who, like Little Richard, was the ultimate chameleon. This guy always delivered exactly what the crowd wanted. You ain't nothing but a hound dog to cry all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. Well, you ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. Well, they said you was high class. 
Just like Little Richard or, or Bill Halley, Elvis was able to create rock and roll and pop music as we know it by picking up bits and pieces of genres and styles and filtering them into something of his own. That bridging spoke to a lot of people, millions. And it stunned a lot of people, thousands. Elvis blatantly combined black and white music and and some people never got over it. They were all shook up. And like Little Richard, Elvis was a strange dude. Dozens of books, documentaries, interviews, and, and now podcasts have grappled with how complex Elvis really was. His twin, his mother, virginity, God, celebrity superstardom, his self-esteem, pills, paranoia, the downfall. I mean, pick a topic and you can go deep. You can spend the rest of your life psychoanalyzing this guy, really. I'm not going to. Let's keep it simple. Elvis was a great chameleon, to the extreme. And like so many great strengths, when taken to the extreme, they become great weaknesses. He was a performer who always delivered exactly what the crowd wanted, even if it came at a cost of his creative fulfillment or even his self-respect. Watching those later performances are so hard, not because he had put on weight, but because you can see that in playing to the crowd, he was torturing himself. Yet he couldn't stop. There's an image that I can't shake from the year before he died. He sings a ballad to like 30,000 people, and, and his right-hand man is behind him, a foot shorter and in a matching but much less bedazzled jumpsuit. <laughs> He's putting a towel around Elvis's neck over and over. After each phrase in the song, Elvis flicks the towel and tosses it to hysterical women in the crowd. It's a mosh pit of smoky eye shadow and hairspray. Elvis does it again and again, with each line, dozens of times, year after year. At first it's gimmicky, then it's soul-sucking. The podcast Revisionist History has an amazing episode on Elvis, which you've got to check out. It chronicles how Elvis could never get through the bridge of Are You Lonesome Tonight? It's trauma. But what sticks with me here is that he keeps trying. Over and over for his entire life, he brings this song into his act and he breaks down in the middle of it. It's torture. He had other songs, but he couldn't stop. After his death, one of Elvis's closest friends, Jerry Schilling, said, I lost my friend to creative disappointment. Sam Phillips, the man behind those magical 1950s Sun Studio records, he says that Elvis was a total loner and that he had the greatest inferiority complex he had ever seen. Of course he did. That's why he never stopped singing exactly what you wanted to hear. But all that people saw in the 50s was that magic American youthfulness in Elvis. We all know the song so well that it, it takes a little imagination to really hear how exciting those Sun Studio recordings really are. Here, let's, let's give it a try. Here's That's All Right, Elvis's first single. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, Mama. Any way do. Well, Mama, she done told me. Papa done told me too. Son, that guy you fooling, wish he ain't. 
So Elvis was a chameleon who linked different musical worlds. His talent was amazing, but his unnatural ability was to scoop up all sorts of music. At first the blues and R&B, but, but country and, and later opera and gospel. And he filtered it all through his own pop culture lens, delivering it in exactly the way his audience craved. He defines music and American culture in 1957. Over the years, Elvis would have major comebacks in his career, but, but by then things had changed. The world was all the Beatles and, and Bob Dylan. Elvis was viewed by many as a relic of the past, even though it was only 14 years after he recorded That's All Right. By the time Elvis died in 1977, he seemed so old and from a distant era. But he was just 42. For me, I only like to think of Elvis walking into Sun Studios in, in the mid-50s. All beauty and energy and magic combined with that sincere, humble, poor boy demeanor. Yes, ma'am. It's the same way that Gillian Welsh presents him in her devastating Elvis Presley blues. In this song, she sings, I was thinking that night about Elvis, day that he died, day that he died, how he took it all out of black and white and grabbed his wand in the other hand and he held on tight and he shook it like a hurricane and he shook it like to make a break and he shook it like a holy roller baby with his soul at stake, with his soul at stake. I was thinking that night about Elvis Day that he died Day that he died And I took it all Out of black and white Grabbed it one and the other hand And it held on tight And he shook it like a Shook it like to make it break. It shook it like a holy roller, baby, with his soul at stake. With his soul at stake. Soul at stake. I was thinking that night about Elvis. A remarkable thing about all this rock and roll stuff, these kings, these, these chameleons, Elvis, Little Richard, the classic rock and roll era, is that the whole thing only lasted about three years. The rock and roll era was over as abruptly as it had begun. I heard it described as a boulder being dropped in the lake, a huge splash, gone quickly, with ripple effects long-lasting, elements of it still heard all over the place in modern music today. But while 1957 is the critical year in the formation of rock and roll, that boulder being dropped in the lake, it's also the critical year in jazz. Those histories are connected. In many ways, the diverging paths of rock and roll and jazz intersect for the last time in 1957. They're moving in opposite directions. This is Duke Ellington from 1940, a good example of great jazz music from before the Second World War. 
Then, the term jazz was used in a much broader way than we think of today. Jazz was vaguely just popular music. It was stuff that wasn't from the theater, and it, it wasn't bluegrass or folk, but, but jazz was a lot of other stuff. It was loud and energetic. It often included swing and, and big band, but also the vocal artists of the era, ragtime, and even sometimes the blues was thrown in there as well. But like everything else, the war changed jazz. Many of the musicians were listening to there, well, they were conscripted. Recording was put on hold, large groups weren't gathering, money had dried up, and, and bands had gotten much smaller. Traveling acts with dozens of musicians just weren't really viable anymore. The war had created a void in jazz music. But filling that void was a group of young musicians, some still teenagers, flocking to hub cities like New York to start a new scene. And it was there that they created narrower, tighter, and more sophisticated forms of jazz music. Jazz music would be chopped up into very specific subgenres. I think it's worth pausing here for a second to think about this. We're seeing that in popular music of the 1950s, the walls between people and, and genres were being knocked down. And in that process, all sorts of really exciting and creative music was being made by blending styles. That trend might have started in the 1950s, but I don't think it ever really stopped. Today, genres have merged to the point where you can hear drum machines on country radio, or, or rock music has become more like pop music, and pop has become more like hip-hop. The breakdown and combining of genres just kept on happening from rock and roll through Santana and John Cougar Mellencamp and Hootie and the Blowfish till now. It, it never stopped. I wonder if there are any more walls to be knocked down, if there's much distinction left. That might be why Spotify and, and other streaming platforms are categorizing music by mood rather than genre. Like music to cook to, or study beats, or, or sunset beach party. These genres just don't mean that much in new music. And this, of course, is no surprise to anyone. We, we all see this in music. But, but I can't imagine that this process of blending styles can continue to be creatively fruitful much longer. Maybe pop music today could benefit from doing what jazz music did in the 50s. Put up walls. You see, throughout the 50s, that younger generation of musicians chopped up jazz into increasingly specific subgenres. Like bebop, hard bop, modal jazz, there was progressive jazz, revivalist jazz, swing, free jazz, and jazz like bossa nova that picked up Brazilian rhythms. All of these styles were being tightly defined by jazz musicians in the post-war era. They literally made rules, constraints, definitions for each. And those constraints led to an incredible period of creativity too. Maybe the pendulum swings. Anyhow, there is a thing that all of those subgenres of jazz have in common. They each dropped the broadness, the mainstream billing that jazz once had. That territory was ceded to rock and roll. Jazz had a new home, the Smoky Club of New York City. The most iconic subgenre of jazz from the era was created by Gil Evans and Miles Davis. Cool jazz. Cool jazz would explode in 1957 when those guys released The Birth of Cool. It was jazz music that wouldn't get too excited. Here, we're, we're listening to it now. Today, I think many of the iconic images of a jazz musician 
are really from this cool jazz period. The smoky clubs, the sharp suits, the complexity subtle and the, the vibe restrained, the brooding broke genius, the heroine, the seriousness, a New York City midnight in the rain. Those images from 1957 stay with us today for better and for worse. But cool jazz holds up as one of jazz's great movements. It's a fantastic entry point for new jazz listeners. If you need a place to access jazz music, I'd say start here. Even though it's probably the most popular subgenre of jazz, it's just as artistically rewarding as, as any other. Jazz is different than pop music in that way. The most popular jazz music is often the best stuff. You've heard of Miles Davis because he was the best. And you know what? This cool jazz thing, it all started with Miles Davis hanging out with Gil Evans in his New York City apartment. And Blossom Deary, well, she was in the room too. In a lot of ways, cool jazz is a counterpoint to rock and roll. A response to its youthful energy, its, its excitement, simplicity. When Blossom Deary sings, she knows full well that she's performing for people who aren't interested in Buddy Holly. She's moving in the opposite direction. Deary's audience was interested in people like Ray Bryant or, or Joe Jones. They're playing here. They were interested in Miles Davis, Bill Evans, Stan Gatz, and Blossom Deary was rubbing shoulders with these guys every week. That's where her album is coming from. The louder and more brash Little Richard got, the calmer and more sophisticated Deary got. Deary's looks and personality matter. She was small, white, blonde, and cute. Cute in sort of a librarian sense. But also, like a librarian, she had no problem scolding you or putting you in your place. On one hand, she was charming, quiet, witty. On the other hand, she could be cutting and sharp. She had some bite. I bet a lot of guys found themselves laughing along with her, only to realize ten minutes later that she had been insulting them. But to describe her as looking out of place, slipping in the side door after hours at Birdland, well, that's an understatement. She was able to nose herself into New York City jazz with, with chameleon-like charm, but it was her talent that allowed her to stick around. Deary was from a nice family in upstate New York. She called it very provincial. She took to piano early on, showed tons of talent, and her family was able to support her with classical training, eventually sending her out of state for further studies. Everybody thought Deary would become a classical pianist, but, but sometime around Duke Ellington's 1940s period, she swapped from classical music to jazz and, and didn't look back. Early on in New York, she jumped around between jazz clubs, at Birdland most nights, watching all sorts of greats like Sarah Vaughan, Charlie Parker, Count Basie. It's the golden age of jazz for many people, and, and she was there watching it all. At first, Deary was a piano player only, sitting in during downtime at a bunch of these clubs, playing standards for singers who would drop in. One of them was, was Tony Bennett. He became a lifelong supporter. But later, she developed her girly, cutesy voice into an instrument with tremendous control and precision, rarely singing with much vibrato because she was always spot on, rarely singing in common phrases, always adding her own character to everything, if subtly. It's easy to picture her being dismissed on her looks and her girly voice, but she was able to fight through that judgment with talent. 
1957 is a time of division in America. But that division could be navigated in exciting and, and creative ways by people who could bridge those worlds. Many of the classic genres we think about today have roots with these bridge builders. It's a time when all the energy in pop culture was being sucked up into rock and roll, and jazz responded by splitting up into narrower subgenres for, for listeners who could be close enough, engaged enough, and, and sophisticated enough to really appreciate subtleties and precision. And Blossom Deary, a chameleon bridging all sorts of different worlds, black and white, east and west, cabaret and jazz, rich and poor, she navigated it all with charm and wit and developed a distinctive voice which is perfectly suited for a rainy day New York City mood. The result is a cult classic album that contains all of it, and which we can listen to in detail right after this. Album Epitaph is still building some momentum. Our, our first season has eight episodes ready to go, but we could use some help reaching fans of music history. If you can think of someone you know who would be interested in this podcast, we, we would really appreciate it if you could share Album Epitaph with them. And it does make a difference if we could get some nice reviews, so please subscribe and review online if, uh, if you like the show. And email us anytime, info at albumepitaph.com. We'd love to hear from you. I like email but I miss the postman. If you've been with us for a few episodes of Album Epitaph, you've no doubt started to pick up on a structure we follow. In this section of the show, we analyze the album through four different lenses. It helps us organize our thoughts and hear music a bit more clearly. Blossom Deary is a great album for discussing these lenses, so let's define it a bit here. The first lens we consider is context. Album Epitaph spends a lot of time on context. You can't really hear Blossom Deary without understanding how jazz was transitioning from big band entertainment to small club subtlety. We've talked enough about that. So for now, just one thought on context. A lot of the new music we listen to today, which is discovered through algorithms or playlist sharing or whatever, it, it tends to remove context from the music. Now, some would argue that great music is great music. Who cares if it's anonymous? But I think it's a big loss for music when we ignore context. Someone has to tell the story. The next lens we use is sonic qualities, the sounds of the album. Sometimes you find an album that immediately blows you away with novel sounds, like the use of synths in the 80s. It just, just sounded so new and so rad. That excitement has happened throughout all of music history, from singers in a cathedral to guitar amplification to a drop in electronic music. For me, though, the king of sonics is Kanye West. Now, <laughs> I'm still trying to make sense of his gospel movement, but prior to that, there was no one out there making more thrilling sounds than West. My favorite album for this is Yeezus, but really, all of his stuff is just so thrilling. Here. For my theme song, my leather black jeans song, my by any means on, part and I'm getting my scream on, into the kingdom. But watch it you bring home You see a black man with a white woman at the top floor They gon' come to your King Kong Middle America packed in Came to see me in my black skin Number one question they asking What can be question you asking? If I don't get ran at my Catholics It comes to conservative Baptists Claiming I'm overreacting Like the black kids in Chirac, bitch Four in the morning And I'm zoning They say I'm possessed It's the omen I keep it 300 Like the Romans 300 bitches Where the Trojans Baby, we living in the moment 
When people call Kanye West a genius, they're usually talking about Sonics. It's the sound of his records, loud, in the car, that's so thrilling. That's why people refer to him more as a producer than a songwriter or rapper, even though he is pretty good at that stuff too. And it's why it's always so exciting to give his albums their first listen. He challenges and surprises you. But this doesn't have to be done through technology. An artist like Tom Waits, especially his 90s stuff, playing things like garbage can lids and and metal found lying around, Waits does it too. Sonics doesn't have to be digital. This lens, Sonics, really shines on streaming platforms. You can hunt and chase for musical thrills, and it doesn't take long to find something sonically amazing. You can always find a kick or a beautiful lo-fi groove in today's music. It's, It's awesome. But the other side of Sonics is that it tends to be the quality of music that we tire of first. That immediate thrill or novelty is the thing that wears off the fastest. You end up in a race against nobody trying to find new music. In a lot of ways, this Blossom Deary album and and cool jazz in general, it's the opposite of sonically mind-blowing. It's intimate, predictable. Sure, technology and production still matter in jazz, of course, but this music in 1957, it isn't about that. Another way to look at music is through the songwriting lens. This can be any number of choices that are made in the songwriting process, like like the key or the tempo, the number of times we reach a chorus, that one weird bass note that shakes up the predictability of the beat. But there are thousands of other examples. From a legal perspective, songwriting is just melody and lyrics, but, but we use it here in a broader sense, more like songcraft. Bottom line, good songwriting never gets old. It's timeless. And because it takes many repeated listens to appreciate songwriting, and because the best songwriting is usually the stuff you don't immediately respond to, we've lost some of the emphasis on songcraft recently. The modern ways of listening to music prioritize discoverability and access to millions of songs rather than a a tight focus on one album or one artist. Streaming has put the emphasis on the pursuit of new songs rather than repeated listening. The CFO at Spotify puts it this way. He calls Spotify's differentiators, the, the things that make his service special, He says that they're really about algorithms, playlists, and discoverability in terms of what consumers are really looking for. But Blossom Deary, maybe surprisingly, is not really about songwriting either. Jazz is grounded in what are called jazz standards, and and these songs are certainly amazing, but but jazz doesn't celebrate the writer of the song as much as it does the performance or, or the interpretation. The impressive part in jazz is seeing what an artist can do with a song. What matters in jazz and here on Blossom Deary's album is just that, the last lens, performance. It's Deary's subtle brilliance at piano, her her way of playing stuff that seems simple and cute, but is actually highly refined. Her phrasing, her voice. Deary makes songs her own. She's playing what many others have played, but it only sounds like her. That's performance. But that's not to say that performance only means skill at music. It's, it's also feel and emotion. Take uh, punk. Punk is all about performance. So is jazz. So there you go. Blossom Deary and the Sex Pistols have something in common. <laughs> all right. Here, let's listen to the album. That's why I'm always hanging around 
This song is actually a bit of a power move, believe it or not. The year before Deary released this song, Bing Crosby released this jazz classic in a much more traditional sense. Deary, or Norman Granz, her producer, decided to open up with this hip version of the classic, showing that Deary was, believe it or not, pretty hip. But this, like so many of the 14 songs on the album, is a song from the Great American Songbook. It's been sung by a who's who of jazz greats. Benny Goodman, Peggy Lee, Nat King Cole, Billy Holiday, Ray Charles, Ella Fitzgerald, Les Paul. Most of this record is like that, including the next song, Loverman, Where Can You Be? This song is from the 40s, and it was written and, and made famous by Billie Holiday. What's interesting is you can see Deary's instinct to slow down jazz standards rather than amp them up. The other versions are quicker, and, and she does this throughout the entire album, countering what was happening in pop music at the time. So what does all this look like? Well, picture a small, well-lit studio. I have eyes for you to give you Brown suits and ties, sheet music, cigarettes, a few mics recorded on a four-track. Just a few professional people in a room, everyone playing it cool. That's a typical 1950s jazz recording session. And they were cool for good reason. Ray Bryant and Joe Jones playing bass and drums on this record, they were a heavyweight rhythm section, playing with all sorts of greats like Oscar Peterson or, or The Bird. So these guys didn't get too excited. They made this album swing and move, but they never overpower or, or dominate. It's first class. Joe Jones, he's famous as the guy who chucked the cymbal at Charlie Parker and almost killed him, all to smarten the bird up and push him to be better. That story was made famous in the movie Whiplash. Anyhow, the, the songs just seem so nice, don't they? Yeah, it's about marriage. But did you catch the lyrics? I have a powerful anesthesia in my fist and the perfect wrist to give your neck a twist. Hammerlock holds, I've mastered a few, but everything I've got belongs to you. I'm not yours for better but for worse, and I've learned to give the well-known witch's curse. I've a terrible tongue and a temper for two, and everything I've got belongs to you. <laughs> yeah, she could be pretty cutting, but she's also funny too. This is tongue firmly planted in cheek. I think the song is great, especially when you remember that while she was straight and clean, she was also married to a heroin addict musician and her marriage was falling apart at the time. So yeah, Deary sounds the prim and proper type, but I'm telling you, you can't judge this thing too quickly. Deary is 33 years old here, no rookie, and she's playing up this girly, cutesy thing. She's having fun with it. Come on. Do you speak French? While this type of music in French has become a bit of a cabaret cliché, it wasn't always that way. Deary did a few years in the Paris jazz scene and 
performed sets in French without much trouble. There are a couple of fully French songs on this album, and she introduces French to the listener slowly here. I happen to like the anonymous nature of a song in a foreign language. Well, I guess it's anonymous because I dropped out of French 11, but, um, but songs like this can put you in even a more relaxed mood. There's still a voice to fill the room, but there's nothing to worry about. I, I, th- I think it's nice. Here, let's jump to more than you know. This is a beautiful instrumental, one of, one of the few, but the instrumentals on this record illustrate how Deary was positioning herself as something more than a jazz vocalist. Her voice is great, but, but she's no Ella Fitzgerald, and, and she doesn't pretend to be. For Deary, that was okay because she saw herself as a piano player first. There aren't many musicians from this era like Deary who could be top-notch singers and players at the same time. It's, it's a whole nother dimension. Remember, th- this era in jazz was mostly recorded live. Everyone together, not many overdubs. You either could do it or you couldn't. There were no studio tricks to hide behind. There are really three types of songs on this record. Jazz standards, show tunes, and instrumentals. The show tunes, like this, are what you'd expect. They're more showy and, and more entertaining. The jazz song's more subtle. Thou swell, thou witty, thou sweet, thou grand, wouldst kiss me pretty, wouldst hold my hand. Both thine eyes are cute to what they do to me. Later, as the business world would change, Deary would decide to take over her career by forming her own record label, Daffodil Records. There, Deary would co-write songs to earn more royalties. She even wrote songs for John Lennon. This indie label thing was revolutionary in 1974. Deary was the first woman to run her own label, opening up the doors for people like Madonna years later. It might as well be spring is all in French, so it's a good time to describe Blossom Deary's sound. She's flirtatious, playful, cute, downright sexy sometimes. She can be funny and witty and coy. She's developed a strange contrast between the the girly, cutesy voice and biting wit. But digging a little deeper, I find her to be sort of detached, straight, in service to the song. And, And I actually think that that style holds up better and better as time goes on. The more I listen to this album, the less cheesy it becomes. She's also quite funny in a sort of smirking, deadpan way. While at first this might sound like very serious music, it's it's actually quite light-hearted, and, and Deary's constantly poking fun at herself, and especially at the men she's singing about. She complained decades later that music should be funnier, and I can't disagree. I mean, who's a really funny musician today? If you know, please email me. I'd love to hear some funny music. I think Weird Al's great, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Info at albumepitaph.com.
The other thing about Deary is that she makes everything seem so light and effortless. In a lot of ways, it's anti-male rock star. Instead of making the songs seem like a passionate physical feat, she makes it all seem like no big deal. She's like, what's all the fuss about, fellas? I love it. Her next album is another smooth French song, one that's, that's really relaxing. Feist actually covered it on her first big album. But here's You For Me. Let's use this song to talk about a strange conflict Deary was in throughout her career. Deary had very definite ideas about music and how it should be enjoyed. She held them for her entire life. At times, her views made a lot of sense. But at others, particularly as she began to play bigger and bigger rooms, she was at odds with her own audience. You see, Deary made rules for her audience. No smoking, no talking during songs, no service, no cash register noise, sitting room only, no photos, dress formally, no recorded music during the breaks, all sorts of stuff. And she enforced these rules. She'd stop songs midway to call people out in the crowd. It's, it's really kind of nuts. In the early days, she played six shows at the Village Vanguard with Miles Davis. <laughs> now, Davis is known for being pretty crusty, but, but even he couldn't believe how she would direct the audience and just be the boss. Deary doing this in the 60s and 70s, it actually reminds me a bit of Jack White doing it today with cell phones. He's demanded that his audience take their cell phones and put them into special pouches or something. I think they're both coming from the same place. It's not very flattering. And it took a while to understand why she held this line. For Deary, music was something that should be enjoyed live. Recorded music was a supplement for when the real thing couldn't be had. In her scene growing up, live music was everywhere. Every bar, cocktail lounge, hotel, white tablecloth restaurant, every, every bowling alley and Mayfair and school dance. Live music was everywhere. And Deary fretted for her entire career that that sort of music was dying. That less and less people were participating in live music. So with this being the concern, she also felt like jazz music was high art, on par with Picasso, and that it deserved to be treated as such. Formality was showing respect for the art. But more than those two things, I think Deary just found herself at odds with place. Her voice was perfectly suited for small, dark clubs. But as she played bigger and bigger rooms where the crowd was used to drinking and dancing, her conflict got bigger and bigger. She didn't have the voice to sing over top of the noise. And everything Deary did was, was tightly rehearsed, practiced, perfected for hours and repeated. She wasn't the type of person who could play off of a crowd or, or respond to their mood. She couldn't improvise. So she tried to dictate the terms. That's unfortunate, I think. So by now, you can tell that these songs all fall into very comfortable, relaxed, and, and pleasant vibes. And that's really the point. Sure, on one hand, they begin to blend with each other. But on the other, I think there's something to be said for the idea that, that when you need to calm down and breathe, an album like this might give you 40 minutes to do it. 40 minutes to be transported to a rainy day cafe. In that sense, it's a real gift.
This is a fine spring morning. It's everywhere for us to share. Just look what a fine spring morning can do. In the end, Blossom Deary is a kind, fun, and relaxed album. Deary has a subtle mastery of the piano and her vocal phrasing, and she has a way of offering music which is sweet and full of interest, but without drama. Throughout the album, the listener always feels comfortable, and there's always something to hold interest as well. It's the type of album which would be perfect for those times in your life when a lot is going on, for when you might be grieving or hurt, for when you need something to fill the room but not make things complicated. And during this time, it's remarkable that an outsider like Blossom Deary, facing many barriers and a lot of skepticism, was able to make an album that was distinctly hers. She didn't make music to impress Miles Davis or Ella Fitzgerald or Bill Evans. She made it her own, and she impressed them anyways. There's a man behind this album that we haven't discussed yet. He's arranging and recording these sessions. A man closely connected to many of the greatest musical talents of the 20th century, but the music was only the second most important thing in his career. So for this episode of Album Epitaph's Big Idea, we're going to do a profile on one of the most important jazz men in history, Norman Granz. And it's coming up right after this. So it turns out that there are a lot of really smart music minds listening out there. Thank you. The feedback we've gotten has been really great, so really thanks. We're collecting all of the best ideas and the criticism for a final errors and omissions episode, which we will release at the end of this season. So if you have any burning thoughts, please email us and we'll get back to you. Info at albumepitaph.com. Okay, cheers. No drum solo, except one, has moved people to tears. Before we get to our profile, let's figure out why Art Blakey's drum solo here from 1964 is so emotional. In 1961, 13, and and then later hundreds of freedom riders participated in civil rights protests at the height of the civil rights movement. Freedom riders rode buses, sitting in any seat and beside anyone from Washington into the Deep South. They did so to bring attention to how the southern states were still enforcing now illegal segregation. It got nasty. Mobs attacked them. Buses were destroyed. Cops put the peaceful Freedom Riders in jail. It got ugliest in Alabama when 
After a mob brutally attacked the Freedom Riders, they had to flee to a church. And the mob surrounded the church and threatened to burn it down with them inside. But through all of this and, and much more, the Freedom Riders remained committed to the cause and to nonviolence. The movement grew. Three years later, the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Act were passed. Art Blakey was moved, and he channeled that emotion into this solo. He titled it The Freedom Riders. And if you listen closely, you can sometimes hear him moan while playing, tears in his eyes. This has been two minutes of it. He goes on for five and a half more. There's another person in the jazz world who we need to talk about. One of the most influential people in modern music history and, and someone who rarely, if ever, got the credit he deserved. The producer of Blossom Deary's album is Norman Granz. Granz, first with Clef Records and then with Verve Records and a few other labels he founded, well, he guided and managed and recorded and produced the greatest American musical talent in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. For more than 30 years, he found and connected the world's best musicians and recorded much of their best work. And I'm not talking about a few good musicians. I'm talking about the best. Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Sarah Vaughan, Dizzy Gillespie, Billie Holiday, Thelonious Monk, Bill Evans, Charlie Parker, Oscar Peterson. The list goes on and on, and it is the list of jazz legends. Now, some of these guys aren't all household names anymore, so to give you some context, let's put it this way. You wouldn't have to look very far down the list of greatest singers of all time to see Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, and Billie Holiday. Nor would you have to go very far down the list of greatest piano players ever to find Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans. The two most important jazz creators in music? Well, that's Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong. Miles Davis? Yeah, he's the best ever. Charlie Parker, the bird. Well, many consider him to be better than that. There is no person in music history more closely associated with the greatest musicians than Norman Granz. But the thing is, it's not just that he founded Verve, got hot, and recorded the best. No, it's how he did it. Granz was born in L.A. in 1918. His parents had fled Russia to escape growing anti-Semitism. During the war, Granz had befriended a few jazz musicians and ended up booking some wartime gigs for military socials, early desegregated gigs. These experiences propelled jazz to become one of music's most important fighters for social justice. That's why he matters. That's why we opened with Blakey's incredible jazz drumming solo. Grants had a rock-solid idea of right and wrong. For him, there was no gray. If something was unjust, he was against it, full stop. His biographer described it as an Old Testament type of belief in justice. Biblical. This became obvious early on in his career. An experience shaped him. Grants had booked a few acts for a club performance. The musicians were excellent and the crowd was taken back by how wonderful they were. But as the crowd praised the musicians after the show, they also refused to let the black musicians have service, and they made them exit out the back door. Granz never got over it. The hypocritical racism of, of praising and then discriminating against was something that he would fight for the rest of his life. For him, the praising made the racism worse. There are a ton of stories about Granz fighting segregation and racism, 
Remember, uh, 1957 is still a time of deep racial tension and division in America. Here's one early story. Oscar Peterson, a black Canadian and a piano great. He was refused access to a cab in the South before a show. Grands overheard the commotion and, and he got into a conflict which ended with a gun pressed into his stomach by a white cop who was saying that he hated Grands even more than he hated the black musicians. Grands told them to pull the trigger if he hated him that much, but one way or another, Peterson was getting in the cab. There are dozens of stories like this about Grands, in restaurants, service stations, across Europe and America, in concert halls, clubs, everywhere. And Grands didn't just demand justice for the musicians. He would demand that the crowd be desegregated too, and, and if that didn't happen, he would pull his axe from the bill at the last minute, sometimes taking a huge financial loss or sometimes facing legal consequences. He did this type of thing for decades. Grants also fought for equal working conditions like dressing room access, quality of transportation, and, and more than anything, equal pay. For years, black musicians were paid less than white musicians, regardless of musical talent, and and Grands tried to change that. He made Ella Fitzgerald far wealthier than would have ever been possible in her early days. She stayed with Grands, like many others, for decades without a contract, just a handshake. Grands couldn't play a note or, or hold a tune, but he ended up creating the greatest jazz catalog in the world by fighting the good fight. If he had any musical talent, it was that he had a good ear and an imagination. Certainly, Grands could hear a musician and identify how talented she was. He walked into a club in Paris, saw a young Blossom Deary, and, and told her that he would record her if she ever made it back to New York. She took him up on the offer, and they made six albums together. Grands did this type of thing all the time. But more than a keen ear for talent, he could imagine how different musicians might fit together on a stage. Grant spent his life creating really interesting combinations of instruments and band sections, but, but also of personalities, deliberately trying to find combustible combinations that would, at least for a night, be magic. This was all showcased in Grant's Jazz at the Philharmonic, a legendary series of concerts and recordings. He also crusaded for jazz as high art. He insisted the audience be sat at tables and be quiet during shows. He introduced the musicians formally, slowly. He presented jazz as something you had to pay close attention to, something you had to study and respect to enjoy. You had to invest. Now, there's a stuffiness and pretension in jazz that I think is pretty unfortunate. I like jazz that, that seems to come from the dark swinging clubs for the small people. Sticky floors, getting hot under the collar, pepper grinder hips, that kind of jazz. But Grands? Grands didn't see it that way at all. He viewed the musicians he worked with as the best artists in the world, up there with Picasso. He, he purposely pulled jazz out of the smoky club and put it into the concert hall alongside Schubert and Mozart. But this wasn't just about his belief in jazz as high art, though. For him, there was a connection. Make people respect the music, and you make them respect the man. And Grands had no trouble holding this line, even if it upset people. <laughs> and it upset people. You see, Grands was so principled that he couldn't stand to be in the same room as someone he thought was dishonest. He demanded integrity. He was the opposite of a chameleon, stubborn, total conviction in his beliefs. 
And this type of commitment to his version of justice, well, it ended up souring a lot of his relationships. I think that's just the cost of being someone like Norman Granz. And I also think he was okay with that. Granz was described by his childhood best friend like this. He was a good man, damn good. And he always stayed the same son of a bitch. That's his best friend. Oscar Peterson said that Granz was intolerant of injustices, generous to a fault. And he pointed out the goodness in Granz and and how he had quietly taken care of the widows of many jazz greats. But Peterson and Granz had a huge falling out once, not talking to each other for three years. And here's the rub. Peterson still ended up naming his son Norman. The journalist and the most famous jazz writer and critic ever, Nat Hentoff, he said this, I've gotten to know justices of the United States Supreme Court, cardinals in the Catholic Church, politicians, direct action pacifists, civil rights leaders, and many other diverse public figures. But Norman Grants was the most honest, stubborn, and principled person I've ever known, and no non-musician in the history of jazz has made a more permanent contribution to the history of this music. The Verve record label is the home for the world's greatest jazz music. If you see the Verve label on a record, it's good. Granz is the greatest jazz producer that ever lived, and all of this was secondary to his fight against racial discrimination and the bridges that he built between black and white people. They don't make men like Norman Granz too often. The walls between genres and people were strong in the 1950s, but the world was changing. Rock and roll knocked down some walls, so did Norman Granz. But it's clear that today, more work needs to be done. Maybe what we need are the chameleons, the people who can drift between cultures and who can build bridges connecting us. But what matters with Blossom Deary is that albums like these can be there for us when we need them. They might sit on the shelf for months, years, but, but for all of us, there comes a time when we might simply need to sit and breathe. And at that moment, pulling Blossom Deary off the shelf, it can help us feel a little more connected a little less alone. So yeah, I'm invested. And if you want to invest in something that matters, check out Blossom Deary on Discogs.com. The records are expensive, but I saw the CD for like four bucks. Maybe they've got a bunch of cheap seven-inch rock and roll singles there, or a Jillian Welsh CD. You might also check out Blitz and Trapper's Fur from 2008. It's full of crazy stuff, but wonderful songwriting in a really weird time for the industry. Blitz and Trapper is the basis of the next episode of Album Epitaph. And just like Springsteen said, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. That was Album Epitaph, and thanks for listening to it. Album Epitaph is produced by the Noise Cancelling Group and created by me, Zach Matthews, with support from Aaron Matthews, Darren Staysmith, David Zier, and Caitlin Purvis. If you like this episode, please subscribe and review online. It, it really does make a difference. Also, we'd love to hear your thoughts or takes on the episode. Did I miss something? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter every once in a while at Album Epitaph. Or you can email me anytime. I'll, I'll definitely get back to you there. 
info at albumepitaph.com. Because I like email, but I'm supposed to. <laughs> well, okay, that's it, I guess. So um, see you next time in the Gord We Trust. <laughs>